Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And welcome to our second and new sponsor, Jaguar. We'll talk more about their partnership later in the series. But for now, you can visit jaguar.co.uk for more product information. Hello and welcome to the fourth podcast in our year-long series, Attitude Heroes. I'm Matt Kane, Editor-in-Chief of Attitude. And today I'm chatting to the brilliant comedian Stephen K. Amos. Stephen's interesting for many reasons. He publicly came out during one of his stand-up shows. He made a documentary about homophobia in the black British community. And he turned his childhood into a Radio 4 sitcom called What Does the K Stand For? which makes growing up gay in a large Nigerian family seem like the funniest thing ever. We chatted about all kinds of things when we met, including his surprising choice of career. Going into stand-up is a very strange thing anyway, because when I was a kid, the stand-up that was on television did not speak to me at all. It was racist, it was sexist, it was homophobic, it was of its time. The complexities of coming out... My mum once said to me, um, you know what, whoever you love is up to you. I just never felt the need to go and sit them down and go, by the way... But you still can't say to your mum and dad the words, I am gay. Yes, I'll give you that. And, most excitingly of all, classic 80s soap, Dynasty. How my mum and dad had no idea when I was, you know, uh, a teenager glued to Dynasty every week. The I, sex was fantastic, I mean? wasn't, wasn't it? It was so raunchy. I mean, it was written all over my bloody forehead. <laughs> So come with me backstage at the Soho Theatre in London to meet Stephen K. Amos. Stephen, thanks for making time for us before your show. Oh, you're more than welcome. We're in this very glamorous dressing room. I, I wish they could see it. I mean, <laughs> the glamour is... It's not even my dressing room, that's the worst <laughs> thing. Uh, my dressing room is downstairs and it's uh, by day, I don't know if you saw it, it's actually an operating hair salon. Oh my God. That's true. Well, this one clearly isn't because there's plastic bags everywhere, bubble wrap, pipes on the floor. It's and a bit of a tip. Big notes going, props, do not touch, <laughs> underlined. And in Spanish as well. <laughs> Por favor, no tocar. Obviously, they've got um, a show on in here which is in Spanish, I'm assuming. I'm so, yes, I don't know what the show is. I mean, I love this venue, though, because there's so many different things happening throughout the evening. And it's, every show, I think, is about an hour. So they've got the show's on back to back. It's great. Your show, World Famous, I'm coming to see it tomorrow. Oh, you better. What can I expect? Um, What can you expect? Lots of laughter. Um, It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, really, because um, it kind of of scans with my name. Stephen K. Amos, World Famous. That's Ah. where it came from. And also the fact that I have, in the last eight months, visited literally uh, every continent on the planet. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Doing well, stand-up. Oh, great. And I hear, actually, oh. one thing I do hear about your show is there's lots about social media in it. Is oh, there right? is, yes. Yes, because, uh, as we all know, the world has got smaller with the advent of said social media. And I just think, in some cases, it's just been abused to, to, to such an extent that they might, they might start uh, having to curb us. You know, that some people might have to be banned from social media. I just can't believe what the, the things people are... 
prepared to say to a complete stranger online. It's extraordinary. So what's the worst thing that you've heard online? Though? Thankfully, because of my kind of style of comedy and the fact that I don't really kind of get involved in any kind of political debate, I don't get anything. I really don't. And to be honest, if I did, I would not engage in any kind of conversation with a complete stranger. Uh, if you like my stuff, that's great. If you don't like my stuff, find someone else. How about things like hookup apps, like Grindr? Do you include those in your show? Do you talk about are they social media? Well, no, because I think um, with a Grindr app, for example, or any other kind of um, hookup app, you're kind of halfway there because you see the person or what they meant to look like. Or you see um, their chest or, or you something see else. Their, yeah, but you start <laughs> talking, though. When you start talking, get an idea of the person... But the difference between social media, you know, maybe like Twitter or, or some Facebook accounts, is that you don't know that person. And it could be anybody making up something um, uh, and just happy to be hiding behind a computer, which I find very distasteful. Absolutely. Speaking about your stand-up, you've always worked your race into your shows. But um, it's over the last 10 years, you've increasingly worked your sexuality into your shows as well. So... What was what was going on here? Why were you holding back initially? And why did the floodgates come suddenly, like, be thrown open in 2006, I think it was, wasn't it? <laughs> floodgates. Well, the <laughs> thing was, um, when I started doing stand-up, it was just about telling jokes. You know, like me, look at me, aren't I showing off? And then the more you kind of get used to it, I, I think... You just find your own voice. And the thing that we couldn't hide, that I can't hide when you see me on stage, is obviously I'm a black man. So I need to address my experiences. The one thing I didn't feel that anyone needed to hear about or talk about was my sexuality, because it wasn't that an important big deal in my life, in my world. Those who knew, those who know me, know. I've never concealed anything. I didn't really have a, a big revelatory moment of, oh, I'm coming out. Um, what happened was, uh, basically, I, a friend of mine was killed in a homophobic attack. And uh, that inspired me, because I was so angry about it, to write a show which was called All of Me. And in that show, that's when I addressed it. And then suddenly, maybe I was being very, very um, uh, naive. The press all picked it up and were like, look, he's come out. And for me, it wasn't really like that. If anything, it was a tribute to my friend. Although it's interesting that you say, um, a lot of people say, oh, it wasn't an important part of my life. But you could argue that um, who we love is always an important part of our lives, isn't it? I think, of course, who you love and who you are is a very important part of your life. In terms of stand-up comedy, uh, if I want to invite people into my world, that's a choice I make. And uh, when I say it's not an important part of my uh, my being, it doesn't define me as a person. You know, the first thing people look see when they see me is a black man. And that's always going to be a barrier for some people, so why introduce another barrier if you can avoid it? <laughs> but I, I personally, I don't see it as a barrier, because hopefully what I'd like to think is that people come to my kind of shows are, are, are enlightened or, or of like mind. I'm not want to preach to... I don't want to preach to the converted, you know. Um, if you have an agenda in your mind that you think, oh, black comic, he's going to be talking about black issues, or black gay comic, that all he's going to do is talk about black and gay things, is not for me. But that isn't what I do. I talk about a whole myriad of things. Yeah, and it's interesting to me, actually, that one of your greatest strengths as a stand-up comedian is your the way that you invite the audience in, the audience interaction and engagement. And considering we hear all the time that our society is racist, homophobic, actually... These two things haven't been barriers for you in terms of engaging with the audience, have they? Well, well, thankfully so, because, uh, as I say, my audience is 
clearly like what I do. <laughs> but that's not to say that I haven't experienced any of those things um, during my years, for example, on the comedy circuit or perhaps in not getting the right roles on TV. Not be- I remember having an, uh, an interview once many, many years ago with a producer at a very, very uh, big production company who got me into his office and he went, you know what, Steve, you're really funny. You are ready right now. It's them. And he points out of his window... He said, but they're not ready for you. Yeah, but ironically, what you know, what we're saying about your audience, they are. Well, but they, well that, that's what I think. I think they are ready. And it's the people that, the powers that be, who can make those differences and those changes, they're the ones resisting. They're risk-averse, aren't they? They're always yes. imagining more homophobia and racism than there actually is. Yes. In some cases, anyway. I think so. And that's why, for example, when I did... Literally, when I did that show, and it was... I don't, I don't want to say out in the open, because I've never lied about myself, ever. Um, uh, I was asked to do so many gay-related things, you know, and my whole purpose at that time, maybe, again, I wasn't quite naive, is I didn't want to be defined purely by my race or by my sexual orientation. I wanted my jokes to be funny. And it became a time where I thought, you know what, actually on stage, I, I know I can do the funny. It's now important for me to talk about things that matter to me. Well, I like when a comedian puts more of him or herself into the jokes. I like that kind of sense of emotional revelation and personal disclosure. I think authenticity is really, you know, it really works, doesn't I, it? I think it does. But then uh, if you look at... If actually, if you look at the people who are sort of filling stadiums in terms of comedy-wise, how many of those people are putting themselves in their act? How many people are being honest and true, or are they just telling jokes? And I think there's a big distinction between certain comics who, who just do jokes and the audience just love them for that, the audience don't need to think, but there are certain comics who are quite challenging, and they're the ones I, I really, I'm, I'm warm to. Can I just say, while we're talking about stand-up, you can actually hear people rehearsing on the stage next door. Can you hear them? Do you know, I thought it was, I thought it was your Walkman or something. <laughs> Walkman? Walkman? Wow. Where have you been for the last 20 years? <laughs> Don't you have a Walkman? I've still got a Polaroid camera. I'm not that old, darling. I probably do have one somewhere stashed away. But um, going back to stand-up, it's always struck me as quite a straight world, actually. Whenever I go to watch stand-up, I mean, your audiences are different, but usually it's a lot of straight guys in those baggy straight man jeans with lager and plastic glasses and indie band t-shirts sometimes the girlfriend tagging along you know and um i just wondered as a gay man entering this very straight world whether you ever have encountered prejudice well if you think about it you know that going into stand-up is a very strange thing anyway because when i was a kid the stand-up that was on television did not speak to me at all. It was racist, it was sexist, it was homophobic, it was of its time. So for me to come into that world was quite... Thankfully, there was this alternative kind of thing that was going on which kind of appealed to me. But the thing was, the majority of people who used to go to comedy clubs were the kind of relics of the 80s, you know, big stag dudes and, you know, and just a kind of lad culture. Um, So what was it like for you? So I know that you didn't necessarily you know, put your sexuality out there straight away. But what was it like? How did it feel to get into that world at first? Well, for me, it was quite good because I fell into it by pure accident and um, uh, just being a very kind of 
happy-go-lucky sort of guy and met this lady in America called Delphine Manley and she said, you're really funny, have you tried stand-up? And I was like, no. And then she took me to my first ever comedy club in, uh, I think it was in Putney back then and it was called Cosmic Comedy and I thought, wow, there's a bloke there just doing a routine and making us laugh. I'll give that a go. And yes, back then my jokes, if I'm honest, were probably terrible, um, but, I, but I kind of felt, wow, this is a platform where you can just say what you want. And I can't think of any job in the world, any job in the world where you can just say exactly what you want. Oh, my, any of my social media forums or platforms that I don't have a disclaimer, I can say what I want. And wow, and you've got a captive audience who are listening. They may not like what you say, may not agree with you, but wow, that freedom is astonishing. And I think because, looking back at my own life, I think the well, one thing my parents instilled into me was that you must uh, get a degree, get an education, and get respect. And that's what I, that's all I ever wanted, to earn respect. And I think if you can make an audience laugh, because you don't know these people, who, where, what, how their day has been. They might have had a bad day. Some people come up and tell me amazing stories post-show. Wow, what, what a thing to do. No, absolutely. But it's interesting that you say that you didn't feel growing up that stand-up would have been a place for you because um, it obviously is a natural home. And I wonder what puts so many gay men off because actually there is a strong tradition amongst gay men of feeling ostracised at school and in social groups. So learning to be funny is a survival mechanism. That's something that a lot of us can um, empathise with. So therefore, you would expect there to be more gay men in stand-up, wouldn't you? Um, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, I, but I, well, maybe not. Maybe the complete opposite, because in, in school or in a social setting, you have to survive, you know. So therefore, if you put yourself in a position where there is a potential that an audience might boo you just because yeah, of your sexuality, yeah. that's a really strange thing to do, you know. Um, uh, and the people that I know who are... I, I, and, for example, I remember for a very, very long time when um, not many gay people or lesbian or transgender went to comedy clubs because they thought they'd see someone on stage doing a joke that is maybe inappropriate, but then the audience laughing. Laugh, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. and that's why uh, in the sort of mid-'90s, there used to be like a three... Um, gay comedy clubs here in Soho uh, run by some very good friends of mine and it was really weird seeing how the same material that I would do on the kind of regular circuit but doing it in front of a group of, of really open-minded people uh, from the LGBT community and the kind of love and warmth in the room just gave it a completely different energy. It was so weird. Well, it's, um, it's interesting, actually, in terms of talking about how you discovered it and how you developed your comedy skills and how you learned to be funny, because I'm talking about this thing as a defence mechanism. Was there any sense of it being a defence mechanism to you? Did you ever feel booed because of who you were in real life? Do you know what? I'm, I'm maybe as a child, bearing in mind I grew up in the mid-70s, 80s. Um, Being deliberately very, not, coy about not that. Not very specific. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, there was a time where there weren't that many black kids in my school. But I wasn't bullied per se. But I also, I, my, this is my real reason. I think it's because I come from a large family. There are lots of us in the family. You had to be heard. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm one of seven. You know, and if, you, if you're not heard, you won't even eat. I mean, that's how... Can you imagine sitting around the dinner table, my mother points to my brother 
and says to me, who's that? That's quite distressing. <laughs> well, I can imagine because you've mined your childhood in um, your Radio 4 comedy show, What Does the Care Stand For?, which I love. Thank you very much. It's yes. interesting that you often um, poke fun at how much your parents used to embarrass you at the, when you were young. Yes. And their Nigerianness and their Nigerian ways. Um, were you were you often embarrassed by your parents? Though? I, I think yeah. Well, thank you, but by the way of mentioning that uh, sitcom, which is uh, co-written by the lovely Jonathan Harvey, um, I think every child has at some point been embarrassed by their parents. That is the nature of the beast, and. And, you know, when you're a young kid, all you want to do is fit it and you don't want to be the odd one out. And if you've got this thing that your, your parents don't sound like everyone else's, your parents don't eat the same stuff as everyone else, your parents dress differently to everybody else, it, it's, ju it's just everything is heightened in your, ch in your childlike mind, going, no, I don't want another reason for people to say... I remember once coming home from primary school that, where my mates followed me home because I'd never, ever ha had a mate come round to the house. They wanted to know where, they wanted to know where, where we lived. And I, by the time I got home, and I hadn't even noticed, I mean, I'd be a really shit spy myself. That he, what are we all? Yeah, he actually <laughs> was at my front door. And I was like, oh my God. And he went, so you do live here, you do live local. And I was just like... But and now the, you do this thing where you invite everybody who wants to listen to your show into your <laughs> childhood home, so you're making up for it now. I am making up for it. You know what it is? I think that every single person has a story to tell. And it's just, I've been very fortunate to be able to make that funny. Um, the stories aren't necessarily happy stories. We've all had, you know, been touched by tragedy and sadness and illness. But if you can find a way to find the positivity in that, that's, what, that's, how, I, that's how I cope. Right, let's get it back. The positivity is oh. great. Let, let's go into the sadness. <laughs> let's, oh. let's probe a bit. Oh. So, um, ni so, Nigerian culture isn't known necessarily for being particularly gay-friendly. No. So I'm wondering what kind of things you heard about gay people when you were growing up and if this might have been a source of this sadness you mentioned for you. I, I have got to say, nothing in my in my household at all. What about the wider community? Well, as I say, back then, we, there, there wasn't a Nigerian community, per ah, se. Right. The okay. only reason why I knew, or I, or I now know, is I've done a lot of research. I know, being an adult, I can see. But the whole, like, for example, my mum loved Danny LaRue, for example. <laughs> Had no idea he was a gay man. You know, my grandma she, used to love Danny. No Danny. idea. And so we'd watch that. And, you know, but my parents, you know, conservative slightly. If anything, you know, risque came on television. So it wasn't just about, you know, uh, anything gay. It was just, it was anything. You couldn't even see a bit of flesh. Well, I mean, why would we tired a pregnant woman walking down the road? <laughs> His mum was like, mm, look at her. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, so so it wasn't, there wasn't any negativity in the house. If anything, the, the, the negativity came from hearing derogatory comments in school. Yeah. About gay, about black, you know, going home, going, uh, watching um, Love Thy Neighbor on the weekend oh, and arriving at school on the Monday to be called, you know, all sorts of names that we'd heard on the TV. That's that's what happened. Well, and everybody says it's like bullying, isn't it? Bullies always say, can't you take a joke? I've seen Love Thy Neighbor recently and it is literally jaw dropping, the racism, isn't it? I mean, how that was accepted. 
in the day is... But, you know, I challenge you to look back at things, that a lot of programmes in the early 80s. I'm talking the Sweeney, I'm talking... Uh, just look at what actually went on in the language because it does genuinely record a time when that, that kind of chat was acceptable. You know, that's what was happening in the communities. It really was. You know, when, when you see, um, you know, uh, one of the characters in the Sweeney, you know, smack a, uh, a secretary's ass and go, oh, bit of skirt. That, know, that was what, that's what happened. I know, but it also perpetuated those attitudes, didn't it? Because mm. it, it, made, it almost legitimised them by putting them on telly. Exactly. Instead of counteracting that, uh, that's why I think it was very good that we had this uh, alternative comedy movement because people got a bit sick and tired of racist jokes. Hey, I'll tell you what we also had that I really want to talk to you about. Oh, what? Well, you talked in your sitcom about how you used to love watching Dynasty. Oh, my God. And I loved Dynasty. I loved it. It was so camp. John Collins as Alexis. We just interviewed her for Attitude and literally all the older people in the office were just in meltdown. We were love so her. I've done a show with her as well. Hello, <laughs> put it out there. I mean, I mean, how my how my mum and dad had no idea when I was, you know, uh, a teenager, glued to Dynasty every week. The I, sex was fantastic, wasn't it? Was it incredible. was so raunchy. I mean, it was written all over my bloody forehead. <laughs> but again, I think that's one thing as well because I myself, I'm not particularly camp. I don't, you know, people. Some people are not shocked. Camp. Oh, I can do camp sweetheart. <laughs> oh, I can do it. But you know, people were shocked. And also, again, you know, looking back at uh, role models, if you like, on TV, the only gay, the obviously gay ones, didn't speak to me because I didn't feel that I was like that. Well, funny enough, joking apart about Dynasty, they did have a gay character in the way before any other show, didn't they? Was it Stephen? Stephen, that's right, <laughs> who in the show got married and then divorced because he wanted to be with his boyfriend. I remember the storyline. <laughs> and he was also quite hot, wasn't he, it from was, what I remember? Yes, he was! <laughs> so did this have an impact on you when we're talking about... I was too young, really, to get that, but we're talking about positive role models and the lack of them. Well, do you know what? I, 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 again, I'm using this word naive because... I had no idea that some of the stuff I had done would have an impact on other people. Um, I did a, a documentary about homophobia within the black community. Want to come to that, Dan? I want to talk to you a lot about that. And um, I've, I've been told it's been used as a tool, an education tool in schools. I, I did the show that I would mentioned uh, that I wrote, All of Me, which I was coming out, if you like. People came up to me after the show of varying ages going, just saw your show and tonight I'm going to go and tell my parents I'm gay. I'm like, what? And then it just kind of like, just to be honest, it became quite overwhelming because yeah. now I'd opened the, the floodgates myself suddenly I was now this spokesperson for all sorts of things. And everybody's clamouring in. I know. Black and gay, he'll work forever. <laughs> tick, tick, tick. Hey, I'll tell you what, in all seriousness, we're talking about the lack of gay characters on telly, but what about gay people in real life? Did you meet any? Were there any in your kind of wider world or any you came into contact with? Absolutely not. Everybody says that who I interview. Everybody says that. And to be perfectly honest, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Uh, there was a kid, good. There was a kid in uh, uh, my uh, my sister had a friend in her class, and her younger brother was uh, two years below us, and he was so obviously gay. 
And That's what I was like. And those people, we can't hide it. And we are literally on the front line of the battle the whole you, time. Absolutely. And I, you know, I would watch while other people would bully and tease and whatever, knowing that I am sort of like that. But I couldn't no, I do... Know, it was like a... It was so... Looking back, I feel terrible about it. Uh, but we've since become really, really good friends, obviously, whatever. And have you discussed but, it with him, this... Book? Oh, God, yeah. But it was so weird. It just meant that at least... There's no focus on me. You know, at least, oh, you've yeah, got that I know, to deal I with. Know, Thanks for carrying the can for us. Absolutely. What about, you know, talking about your background, did religion come into play? Was your family religious? Uh, thankfully not. Um, my parents are the sort of people who will call upon the Lord if necessary, but uh, they weren't um, They weren't the kind of, you know, going to church every Sunday and, and we've got to have Bible study lessons. No, not at all. But in terms of your kind of Nigerian cultural heritage, have you know, I'm saying that it's not necessarily known for being gay-friendly in Britain, but Nigeria itself, I've, I'd love to go somewhere like that, but the gay thing would always hold me back. Yes. Have you been to Nigeria as an out gay man? Um, that's an interesting question. I've been to Nigeria as myself. <laughs> Does that count? Um, and I do know that there are gay clubs in uh, Nigeria. I know that for a fact. I also know that... Even though it's it's very much frowned upon culturally, if it goes on and we don't talk about it, that's fine. Well, it's interesting. So, I mean? so, so when you were there, you didn't talk about it. You did, did you not feel you could, or did it just not come? Well, up? it just didn't come up. I mean, the expectation is, you know, you're going you're to grow up and get married to a woman and have kids. That is the ideal, and that's what's written in the Bible. That is basically the essence of the culture. So what? You know. So if anybody asked you in Nigeria when you were going to get married or if you had a girlfriend, what would you say? I would say uh, no and no. So it's interesting. So you wouldn't say no, I'm gay. So even so, you did feel some level of discomfort. There or is danger. There, there is a level of discomfort or danger because legally it's against the law. So you'd be foolish to try and out yourself when there is a, a possibility that you would be arrested. You know, if... if um, It's a lot for one person to take on. To, a, you talk about being a role model in this country, but, you know, when standing up and, you know, making a stand for who you are over there involves the danger of imprisonment and whatever else. Mm. It's a lot to take on, isn't it? I mean, yes. And the thing is, I'm also, I'm also very proud of many aspects of the Nigerian culture. I'm proud of my parents and what they've achieved and how they overcame certain things and how they raised all of us to be decent people. However, the structure, the legal system in Nigeria does not allow for someone like me, who's considered also an outsider. I wasn't born there. I didn't grow up there. And can you imagine me taking on the might of the Nigerian government? If the UN can't, you know, get the Nigerian government to change uh, or, or, to, or to relax their laws, I doubt it very much I can. Does your sexuality as a gay man affect the way that you feel about your Nigerian cultural heritage? Um, you talk about being proud of certain aspects of it. Yes. I think any aspect of your life that doesn't respect your sexuality um, is, is heartbreaking because it is part of who you are. The thing is, I don't, I don't live in Nigeria. I, I live here uh, and I have a voice that uh, some people like to listen to. Um, 
maybe in a few years' time, I might go and campaign, or maybe I'll go and do um, some stand-up over there. And let's not forget that we live in an era where, you know, anybody can Google me, and for example, know, and find the facts, because they're all there. I'm not hiding. And that's the one thing I will always tell people who are finding it hard to come out or be who they are, that living a lie is the worst thing you can do, because constantly looking over your shoulder is not healthy for anyone. You know, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast series now is celebrating the 50th anniversary of partial decriminalisation in England and Wales. Um, we're, we're celebrating how much easier it is for British gay kids now, people growing up thinking that they're going to be gay, but how much easier do you think it is in reality for British gay kids from Nigerian families? If those kids, uh, if their parents um, have been here for a long time, also exposed to um, the culture of, of the land, then maybe they'd be lucky. If their parents are maybe very religious and, and, uh, and, and, and very domineering in that way, maybe they're going to be fighting an, an upward struggle because um, it's not easy. And I completely understand this whole down low thing and hiding who you are because... In many, many cases, it's easier because the other option is you'll be disowned by your family. I mean, I remember that the phrase at school between me and a couple of my black friends, you know, oh, gay, oh, that's a white man's thing. That's a white man's disease. That was really, that was a thing. Yeah, well, actually, you know, you've mentioned Batman, the documentary you made about homophobia in Black Britain. And one thing that I really remember from it, it was brilliant, by the way, but one thing that really stuck in my mind was that experiment you did when it was passers-by and you said to people, which ones do you think are gay? And nobody picked out a black one, did they? People think everybody, white people and black people, thought it was a white person's thing. Yeah, that's, that's you know, the permissive Londoners, they do all sorts of nonsense. That's, that's the idea. Look at them. Look at them. Look, they can't even control their kids. Look at them. That they, you know, if you let your kids get away with murder, they'll get away with murder. Well, yeah. I've got, I've, I know people who are married who I marry with kids who I know to be gay. Flipping egg. So what, so do you talk to them about their gayness? Or is it I just do, but it's, it's, such a, it's such a bone of contention with me because I, I just think it's really, if the wife knew and the kids knew, that's another story, but they don't. So how do you know? Did they, these people I bumped tell into you? this person oh, right. at a gay club oh, right. and I was just like, what the... Do you think he's happy, this person, or is he presumably not? Well, you, I, well, I would assume uh, he can't be happy, but, but then that's what I mean about li living a double life. And, you know, and this person is from a Nigerian family, and I'm pretty certain his parents were very strict uh, in terms of religion and, and their cultural understanding. And it was better for him to marry and live a, a, an awful double life than to come out and be happy. And how does that make you feel? It, 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 it's, it's so sad. It makes me... Re I'm back, I'm nearly welling up thinking about it. It's so sad. We're going to take a short pause now. But in a minute, we'll hear Stephen's coming out story. You're such an amazing role model. You do all these shows about being gay, but you still can't say to your mum and dad the words, I am gay. Yes, I'll give you that. The prejudice he's experienced since then. I've had bounces on doors of gay clubs. Oh, you know it's a gay club, do you, mate? And we fall into those hideous stereotypes going, oh, look at you as a six-foot-two strapping black man. You must be well-endowed and you must oh, be good at sprinting. 
and how he ended up where he is today. One of my friends brings his dad, who's I think 70-something, to my shows. But making that man laugh and making him see a gay man, a black man, in a completely different way, that's my job done. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And welcome to our second and new sponsor, Jaguar. We'll talk more about their partnership later in the series, but for now you can visit jaguar.co.uk for more product information. Please do subscribe if you haven't done so already, as we'll have another great guest next month. But for now, let's get back to Stephen. So we've talked about Batman. We've talked about these people that you know who don't feel that they come out. But why do you think then it is so much harder for British men to be gay who are black? Why is it so much harder to be black and gay? Well, so much harder to be black. Well, you know why? Because we, even though we're talking, you know, fifty years on, there is still um, racism. There is still homophobia. Uh, there is still bigotry out there. So therefore. You know, who wants to put themselves in a position where you will be the target of something? Well, when you're, when if you grow up and you're the target anyway for being mm. black, um, at least with your sexuality, you can hide it. Well, yeah, and I'm sure that's what a lot of people did. A lot of people are still hiding it because it's easier to do. Um, but as I say to anybody who does feel, and also. Let's not forget that if you live in a big city, you know, London, Manchester, Brighton, where it's, you know, very visible, that's one thing. But if you live, you know, in the sticks and you are literally the only one, you know, and then you hit... A friend of mine was telling me, um, this is slightly left of centre, his grandmother um, is racist, is a white friend of mine, is racist and homophobic. And my friend is a gay man of 30 and has a black boyfriend. And I said to him, if, you're, if you told your grandmother about you, do you think she'd disown you? And he said, no, I don't think so. But, you know, she's, she's of that age now, so she, and she's not going to be around for long, so it's, it's no point. And I was like, you know, you could make a change. Yeah, no, You no. could make a difference by t- standing up to her bigotry and saying, you know what, Nan, you're talking about me. 
Yeah, but it's, this is the thing. It's what I'm saying to you about you making a stand in Nigeria. I mean, everything's relative and it is hard for individuals, isn't it? And I don't think we should criticise or judge. I absolutely, if I were you, I would have had the same conversation with him. But it's hard for some people, isn't it? I, I, I'm not saying it's hard at all, but that's why, I'm, that's why I said, for example, if, if, if culturally uh, it's not like the Caribbean, Africa, it, culturally being gay is, ju is just not seen as acceptable. So that's a hard battle to deal with. If you live in a country where um, times are changing and, and laws are on your side, it makes it easier. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I would like to thought that if um, my grandmother, if my grandmother was racist, for example, against white people, I think I would tell her something. I would have to say something because she's my grandmother and I would like to think that she loves me unconditionally. In fact, well, and grandparents, it's interesting, grand, mo, both my grandmas were like completely fine about the gay thing. It's, they can surprise you when there's that, that skip of a generation. They can surprise you. My nana, who's still alive and 95 nearly, is, um, loves like meeting my boyfriends and things. <laughs> <laughs> they can surprise you. Your know, harem of boyfriends. <laughs> nana, there's a 52. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? They can surprise us sometimes. But which is what and you... And they're a product of the the um, social context they grew up in, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be bigoted. You know, they still might be open to having their attitudes changed if they are. Absolutely. And also, there's a, there's, there is a school of thought where you're also putting your uh, uh, perceptions of them in your own head. Like, when I did that show, uh, Batman, I spoke to a guy, I think his name was Ola. He was Nigerian, a very big guy. And he and I said to him, as we were making the documentary, I said, by the way, did your mum know you're gay? And he went, no, no. I went, you know this is going out on television. And he went, oh, yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell her over dinner. But, you know, she might kick me out. And I was like, oh, okay, just do me a favour. Whatever happens, just tell me tomorrow, okay? The next day, I met up with him, and he, he said, and his mum is religious. She said, so, you're my son. But yeah, 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 so she's surprised wow. him. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic, isn't it? I love those stories. I love those stories. So tell us your story. What was it like <laughs> when you came out to your mum and dad? Well, do you know what? I've got to be honest, I didn't have one of those moments. I never did. Uh, the only people I sort of sat down and went, ba-da, are my brothers and sisters. So who told your mum and dad, or did you never tell them? I, I don't think... But you know what? I, I, a part of me... Assume... You're smiling now. I'm... I think I think you... Have you no, ever... you know, no I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm assuming that bearing in mind they know me and they've, they've seen me with two people for a long time, <laughs> i.e. relationships. Um, and my mum once said to me, um, you know what, whoever you love is up to you. I'm, I, just, I just never felt the need to go and sit them down and go, by the way, this is that. This is See, I think that's fascinating because you're such an amazing role model. You do all these shows about being gay, but you still can't say to your mum and dad the words, I am gay. Yes, I'll give you that. So that does mean that there still is a lot of shit around you. Uh, and you are conditioned uh, by some of the stuff you grew up with. Uh, but you know what? I, I don't, there's, it's very rare that I say to anybody, by the way, I'm gay. You know, I just, that just doesn't come out of my mouth, really. Why oh, not? Hello. I, I say it all the time. Well, of course, <laughs> you can't hide it, can't you, lump? Um, I don't, I don't, yes, maybe for many, many years, I couldn't say it. I couldn't articulate those words because, you know, it did 
you know, people of my generation anyway, there was a level of shame, a, le a level of um, inferiority complex, uh, non-acceptance, you were an outsider. So maybe it was easier just to blend into the background. So Well, and also, if, you know, talking about, if we've said, you know, with the black thing, you've already got racism, but at least on that front, you have people on your team, you're growing up with a mum and dad and a support system. And if there is the worry that were you to come out as gay, you might lose that. Mm. I can see how that's a big thing to take on. Yeah. And I, you know, I, that's why I've, I've been a big supporter for the Albert Kennedy Trust and other such organisations where you hear stories of, of teenagers from the oh, LGBT no, community who do get disowned by their parents. It's, it's, it's a reality. So have you take so you mentioned these two previous boyfriends. Have you taken either of them home to see your mum and dad? Absolutely. But this, how did this... you introduce them? <laughs> that's a good that's a good let's just one of them uh, is still my very, very good friend till this day. We lived together for seven years. Did you right? use And did... my parents used to come to visit me and I'd go and visit them. You know, it was one of those unspoken things. That's so what, did you use yeah. to call this is my friend? Did you that's do That's how it first started, yeah. Oh no. Yeah. And no, that, that makes me sad that there's still that level of discomfort there with you that you couldn't say to your mum and dad, this is my boy. What, would you, what do you think they would have said if you said to them, this is my boyfriend, I love Ooh, him? Oh, that's, 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 I have no idea. No, but it fills me with anxiety, yeah. that question. Isn't that fascinating yeah. that this can still, I'm sorry to cause you anxiety, but... I know, I didn't expect this. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a laugh a minute. <laughs> but isn't it fascinating that it can still cause anxiety yeah. with somebody like you who's so publicly gay? I, well, exactly. And I think for all of us, in if you think about your family uh, dynamic, if a, if a parent says something to you, you will automatically go back to that five-year-old. That five-year-old. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's how I... Well, that's, that's how I feel when I think about my parents. You know, I, I, you, I make, make jokes of it in the radio show, but in reality, you know... I'm still that child. So have they heard your radio show? Have they been to any of your stand-up? Oh, do you know, my parents... Again, I think a very uh, different generation. My parents have only ever seen me do stand-up live twice. Ever. And I've been going for 20 years this year. Right, so here's the thing. If you can't say to them the words, I, I am gay, if they were in your audience one night and you were doing a few of your gay jokes, would you feel you had to tone them down? Absolutely not. So you, you do absolutely that and not. just not think about them being in the audience? I Absolutely not. My radio show, uh, my brother, who records everything I do, I do, has given them copies. Whether oh, they've right, heard okay. it or not, I don't know. As I say, they've come and see it, they've come to the show. If, like, if, they, if, if my parents came to my house um, and if I was with a partner, that partner would not be asked to leave the house or hide in the bedroom. You come into my house. Yeah. This is my world. I may not have explicitly said things to you, but it's so obvious to anyone. And would you get married to a partner and make that public declaration? Because obviously we have our families there at that. Or would, would that make you anxious? Well, uh, well that's, that's interesting. I'm, I, I'd like to have somebody, I think. I'm, I've been single now for four years. Oh, four plus darling. years, so I'm otherwise available. Um, but I've been with a partner to family weddings. Oh, right. Oh, okay. For example, uh, this is an interesting story. One of my uh, sisters got married and um, I was there with a partner. And for some reason, the, um, she was a Nigerian celebrant, the person officiating, 
decided to say something on the lines of, we're very pleased that there is this union between a man and a woman, because as we all know, there should be no union between a man and a man. And I was just, just like... She chucked that into the mix. She, she chucked it into the mix. And I have to say, myself, my sister, uh, my partner, and three other family members took her to one side. Didn't want to ruin the wedding. I just went, excuse me, this is meant to be a celebrating a, a union of a couple. We don't need you to bring your bigoted views at this. Oh, good you, boy. Did you, did you do that because you knew that these people were in the audience? Because if you did, that's outrageous. I would have started ranting and raving. I would have been like, literally, you stupid bitch. Yeah, I can't you, hold it in with that kind of thing. Well, I, I, we would have said something at the time, but it was literally during the ceremony. Mm. So we... We bit our tongue, but we were, we all sort of looked at each other. Did that just happen? Really? You know, speaking about this kind of thing happening, when you did Batman, the documentary, I remember you went back to you went to Jamaica, didn't mm. you? So what was so in terms of hearing horrendous things, that must have been really intense. It was very intense, but you know what? The whole journey, the whole point about making that uh, documentary was to find out um, the views of our younger generation. That was all it was. But it kept coming back to religion, culture, um, uh, it being nasty, um, uh, and certain music genres. Oh, no, no, and then, no. and that's what y young people were quoting to me. So that's what where the journey led me to. If the, if they had said um, or religious, and maybe would have focused on the church and the 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 um, the impact of the church in Africa and in the Caribbean and where that comes from, because you know they, there's a lot of that in there. But we also learned about that the young people's view on music. That's why we ended up in Jamaica because the plan wasn't to go to Jamaica. That wasn't how I envisaged the the the, the show, the program coming about. It was literally following the trail of what people were saying. You know what, speaking about these countries where homophobia is rife, you started this interview by talking about having performed all over the world, world famous. <laughs> um, what's your policy on going to countries where it's illegal to be gay? Because I know you mentioned that in Nigeria, but I know you've performed in all these places. And we were talking about this in the Attitude Office the other day. Some of us were saying, if countries are anti-gay and have anti-gay legislation, should we go and introduce them to gays and show them that we're all, um, we're just like they are? Or should we boycott them and say, we are not going to give our money to anti-gay governments, we are going to make a stand because that's the only way that they'll change? Do you know what I mean? It's, quite, uh, it's an yes. ethical dilemma a lot of gay men it, have it to is, face. It, it is a dilemma. I... I, I think um it's more it's more productive to go there because you're putting yourself at risk anyway because your being is against the law in their eyes so if you see someone like elton john or someone like um uh, graham norton going to perform in these certain countries they will undoubtedly get a crowd that says a, that says a lot more than the government's laws and you know someone of that kind of level is not going to be arrested or, or yeah. granted entry to the country. And I think that is a more powerful statement, going there and having people in that country coming to the show. Yeah, but it's funny because we were talking about you going to Nigeria and I was saying it must be really hard to be open about your sexuality just going about your day-to-day -day life. But when you're standing up on stage mm. and talking about it in a country where it's illegal, whether it's the Seychelles, I know you've performed, or all these other places, that's really hardcore, isn't it? It is really hardcore. And I'd say, 
And that is what I say. But that's, that's what I'm trying to say about um, being who you are, being comfortable in your own skin. And it's easier for me to uh, challenge people's perceptions than it is to confront my parents. You know, when I first started doing stand-up, I used to pretend I was actually Nigerian by putting on an accent just to throw... And it wasn't about the accent, it was about the words I was saying. Those were the jokes. But I would convince an audience that I was a Nigerian man who'd just arrived and they'd be pissing themselves. And then halfway through, I'd flip it and then they'd go, oh, you cheated us. I've seen you do and that. And that's I what I like do to do. I like to play with perceptions. The people, that's why I wear a wedding ring. People assume I'm married. And, you know, let's not make assumptions about people. Let's not have uh, knee-jerk reactions. Whatever, that's, that's my problem with social media. People are so quick to judge without stepping back for a second, having a think. Everyone's got this thing. Oh, I've got an opinion, I've got an opinion. As far as I'm concerned, if your opinion isn't reasoned, it's not valid. It's interesting though, isn't it? So you're talking about, you're a real feather ruffler, aren't you? Underneath the kind of fun jokes and the chatting to the audiences, you know, you're doing all this stuff to challenge assumptions. You are a really political animal. Do you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased you said that because one of the things I say at the top of the show is I go, oh, good evening, folks. Uh, if you're here tonight expecting deep meaning and pathos, you're in the wrong effing show. <laughs> We're going to laugh. However, by the end of the show, that's exactly what you're getting. Ooh, so you're getting it in by stealth. You're very sneaky. That's what you're getting. Because, you know, and, I, and, I, and that's why I really love doing the job that I do, because there are people that come to my audiences, uh, people that come to my shows, different backgrounds, different ages, different colours, different creeds, and they all, in that moment that we're in that show, we're all laughing at the same things. That, to me, is... Priceless, you know. It's really people powerful. from different backgrounds, really socio-economic backgrounds as well. Like yesterday in the in the audience, there was there was a family, uh, a young lad, probably about twenty, and his parents, and there, there was an Asian family, three d girls and a son, and the parents, and they were from somewhere like Hertfordshire or somewhere posh, and they were from North London. Those two would never mix. Yeah. No, yeah. But the jokes I was saying got them. So there are more, there are more similarities between us than we even realise. And it's interesting that you're aware of all this, this political element to your work. Do you know what I think it is? I think the more, the older you get and the, the more responsible you get. I, what I can't bear is injustice. I can't bear um, any, any ignorance, you know. People say, oh, ignorance is bliss. I, I don't agree with that. I'm at my most blissful when I'm asleep. And when I'm asleep, nothing happens. You know, we live in a world where we do have information and access to information. So there's no excuse for ignorance, none whatsoever. And if we hear bigotry, particularly if it's in our, amongst our own group, you know, gone are the days of having, you know, like-minded friends with the same ideals, the same beliefs. Those days are gone. We've now, we've now the world has, has opened up much more than ever did. Right, for example, I, I, when I, one of my first tours of Australia, I was doing a three-handers, that means uh, me and two other comics on the stage. And there were two white comics, good friends of mine, did the show. After the show, some bloke comes up to us and he goes, hey guys, that's a good show, really funny. Even the black fellow. <gasps> what? Terrible, Even, what were you expecting? <laughs> well, it's there in the statement, isn't it? It's yeah. implicit. He was yeah. expecting you not to be funny. Um... 
How about the gay community? Because we hear a lot about racism within the gay community. When you started, when you came out and started to explore your sexuality and make your debut on the gay scene, um, were you welcomed? How were you greeted? I've got to be honest, I didn't think it was a welcoming place at all, to be honest. Um, Back then, and I know since then, there are uh, a few sort of black gay clubs I naively thought that um, because we all had this thing in common that uh, it would be a welcoming and accepting arena. But let's not forget that just because one is gay doesn't mean you're not a bigot yourself. No, no, it doesn't, doesn't mean, matter yeah, absolutely. doesn't mean you're not a racist. So have you, you, en- know? Have you encountered racism on the gay, in the gay community? I haven't. And, um, I, I personally haven't. I've heard stories. Um, I've heard, I've had, you know, bouncers at clubs, for example, you know, look you up and down in a certain way, one leave, or people telling me bouncers went on doors of gay clubs. Oh, you know it's a gay club, do you, mate? You know, do you know what I mean? Because they've also made an assumption about me. Um, I've had somebody in a gay club come up to me and go, oh, I really like black guys. Well, good for you. Well done. <laughs> Would you want a medal? Well, yeah. it's interesting when they say I like black guys. What they basically mean is they like their blackness because what they're taking out of the equation is what you're like as human beings. Yeah. Or if they say they like all black men, yeah. how can you say that unless all you like about them yeah. is their blackness? I know. And I, in fact, what I should have said was, oh, so do I. <laughs> oh, house. <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, because my last boyfriend was black, but none of my others were black. Since then, people have often said to me, oh, you like black men. As if, you know, it's this kind of universal yeah. thing. Yeah. And all those awful lines, once you've had black, you'll never go back, and this, that, and the other. As oh. if the black man is seen as this kind of purely sexual being by so many people. I mean, I'll take that. It's... I am a purely sexual being. <laughs> and uh, yes, yes, exactly. And we, and we fall into those hideous stereotypes going, oh, look at you as a six foot two strapping black man. You must be well endowed and you must oh, be no. good at sprinting. No, mm. I know, and everybody, and, and when you hear about these horror stories on um, Grinder and other hooker pups, it's everybody assuming you're well endowed, you're these dominant tops. It's seeing the black man as this kind of sexually potent dom. It's, it's basically a cliche, like anything else. It is it's a racism, cliche. Isn't it, it is racism, and also when I see stuff um, um, that people write, I just what this is what really astounds me: people who write the most ludicrous things on on those kind of apps like Grindr um, where they go um, where they're so specific about what they want uh, no Asians or and I'm, no fats well, no fans no, no what, Asians what are you doing I don't like black men I, yeah. I know I know whites only you kind of go whites only I know A not only are you uh, diminishing the pool that's out there you, by your statement you've let us know what bit of a dick you are because you can talk to people you can go, hi, and then, okay, not for me, whatever. But to just dismiss an entire group of people. I mean, I'm sure, and of course, people, you get, there are some people who are attracted to a certain type. Yeah, I mean, but... Rod Stewart's always been married to Leggy Blondes. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So, I mean, you can, you can put that argument forward. But, you know, when people say, I like black men... I mean, they're saying horrible things about black men, but then there's the, that kind of positive thing, which is also yeah. racist. yeah. You know, since having a black boyfriend, I was at a party the other day. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else. No. <laughs> I get this. I was at a party the other day. There was one black guy in the room. He wasn't remotely attractive. And um, somebody said to me, oh, there's one for you. As if, you know, I couldn't resist my, I couldn't resist his blackness because it was this kind of 
sexual... It, well, I'm just surprised you haven't started stroking my penis, to be honest. <laughs> you haven't got it out yet, darling. <laughs> Notice better, the yet. Better out, the, better out than in. <laughs> but how do you feel about this, seriously? Because, the you know, the negative things that are said are one thing, but how do you feel about these positive things that are said? Well, again, I think if I, I, would, not, I would not accept the positive things because um, you've got to accept the negative as well. Um, yeah, yeah so absolutely. So I... I pay no attention to that at all. If I do come across somebody's um, uh, um, profile that's very specific, I, I think maybe I've done it before in the past when someone said, no black people, and I just wrote back, why? Just out of interest. Yeah. Didn't, have, did a, didn't have a very long conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I could say what I want, or something kind of ridiculous. I was just like, oh, you're an idiot. Well, they know? always say it's just personal taste, don't they? They always say it's... it's... Yeah, but we're not all the same. You know, no, I know exactly. No, I know, no, I know. But, the assumption is that you are on yes, their part. Yeah. So, talking about being black and gay, how about UK Black Pride? Have you ever been to Black Pride? I have once, actually. Yes, um, one of the organisers, um, Lady Phil, is amazing. Yes, yes. She asked me. She's been asking me for about four years, but uh, I've always been busy. But I did it. Uh, I think I probably did it two years ago now. Yes, and it was great because. Uh, even though it's called UK Black Pride, at the event, a sea of black faces, but also a lot of other faces. You know, yeah. white faces, Asian faces, loads of people coming together. And I think it was very important to have a movement because that's why there, there are successful black gay clubs because, you know, you want to feel that you're part of something. So what about people who might argue that it's ghettoizing? black gays you don't think you know by having a separate black gay night or a separate black gay pride i don't agree with that but some people do put forward that argument yeah they can do and i probably wager to say that those people aren't black and gay themselves <laughs> because do you know what i mean if you don't if i go to a club and i don't see uh many black faces i have to say i don't feel that comfortable but i don't think it's maybe for me um, I mean, I, I have been through, through over the years, of course. You know, there was a time when, you know, if you go to heaven, even now, I think one of the upstairs room, they play R&B up there, full of black boys. Oh, I know. And some other white boys kind of going, yeah, like it here. Downstairs, <laughs> pop and techno, no black faces there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's also that cultural kind of familiarity. So how did you feel performing at Black Pride? It was. I thought it was. I thought it was good. I performed at at Pride as well, uh, in Trafalgar Square on the main stage. I performed uh, for UK Black Pride, and I think I think both are very valid. It's the same reason why we have to have, or we have to have, while we have you know black comedy shows, while we have um, black music awards, you know, because people feel underrepresented. So what better way? Than to, than to give them something that they can, as I say, be a part of. So if, we, if we're looking at this 50th anniversary, and I'm not going to ask you your age, because <laughs> I thought you were 50, but I'm not sure. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> I put that spanner in the works. Do you know what it is? It's really genuinely because um, I've been asked to do lots of different kind of shows over the years, and now because of social media, for example, one of the shows I did... They found a picture of me when I was young and put it in the show without my knowledge. Uh, and I just, and, and because of 
the way everything is so accessible. I just thought, you know what? Just leave some bits aside. Yeah. You know, hold like, something back. You've told me about hold, everything else. Yeah, hold something. You know, like make <coughs> jokes about your dick. Let's let's hold back the edge. <laughs> well, you, well, you know, like for example, like the, the show that I do about my parents. You know, uh, even though it's uh, semi-autobiographical a lot of it is made for comedic purposes. And I did ask them if it was okay because they didn't sign up for this. So yeah. therefore, and my, my social media, for example, my Facebook page, I have a personal one which isn't public, but even on that personal one, I don't have pictures of my family or 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 my lover or any, because I'm... Lover, that's yeah. so tabloid but and racy. It's very dynasty. Well, you talk about tabloid and racy, a very good friend of mine, for example, was on uh, Grinder. Um, I have been on Grinder, but without a picture. My friend is on Grinder. He's a TV person. His face is there. A tabloid newspaper made a whole big thing about him on a dating app site. Uh, but look at all that. Look at all. Look what all goes on on this app site. Men with their dicks out. You know, just made it sound so much seedier and. And I don't want anybody snooping around. I, I know I've got nothing to hide. I think some things should be just left. Okay, so I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to probe you about your. They can probe away. <laughs> but what but I you were at, you're in the right ballpark, though. I'll give you that. <laughs> but but what is age, though? Age is but a mere recording of time. That's all it is. Absolutely. Well, on that subject, how do you feel at whatever age you are, <laughs> looking back over time at the journey in this anniversary year of decriminalisation? How do you feel looking back at the journey that you have undertaken as a gay man, as a black gay man, all the things we've talked about? If someone said to young Steve 30 years ago that I'd be sitting in a dressing room talking to Attitude magazine openly and honestly, having done a live show where I've come out to complete strangers over a tour, where I've done a programme about homosexuality within the black community. I've done a radio series where I'm open about young Steve as a teenager exploring sexuality. I would have said no. The young me would not, would want so to be... So what a journey you've been on that. So I think it's been an incredible journey. And I, for that, I've thanked my family because they, without their support, you're nothing. Uh, I, I thank the, the people who came into my life at the right time, who let me know that being gay was okay. One of them was a very, very dear friend of mine, Jonathan Cash. Um, I met him when I was working at a a newspaper, and uh, he was out and gay and full of life, and I was just like, wow, I want to be like him. And it just made me know that it was okay. And now that you are like him, do you feel proud of yourself? Oh, I am so proud, and... uh... (laughs) <laughs> I love me. I love a bit of me. <laughs> no, do you know what? I, 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 my, we, we can't be complacent because there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And my the thing I get joy off the most is when people come to my shows or if, if I've changed somebody's mind, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like one of my friends brings his dad, who's I think 70-something, to my shows, and he says to me, oh, you know what? I don't think my dad knows any black gay men. He thinks you're bloody funny. And I, just that in my head of making this guy laugh. I don't know much about the dad, but making that man laugh and making possibly making him see a gay man, a black man, in a completely different way, that's my job done. Stephen K. Amos, thank you very much. Thank you. Stephen K. Amos, job done indeed. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. 
If you have, do tell your friends and please help spread the word. These podcasts are sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. Check out their website at great.gov.uk. And welcome again to our second and new sponsor, Jaguar. We'll talk more about their partnership later in the series, but for now you can visit jaguar.co.uk for more product information. If you've subscribed to this podcast, I'll be back in two weeks' time with news of my next special guest. If you haven't, well, you might just miss out. Until next time, thanks again for listening. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.